This episode is supported by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. And that is why every morning I drink AG1. No exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day. It's a powerful, healthy habit. It's also powerfully simple. So if you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. We live in a world where the news is at our fingertips, where we're one click or swipe away from the latest headlines. But how often do we stop swiping and scrolling and just listen? It's the difference between knowing what's in the headlines and understanding how it got there. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take, Al Jazeera's daily news podcast, where we bring you the context and the people behind the global stories that matter. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. I guess I've always thought of us here at Canada Land as pirates, as punks, as pornographers. You know, as the upstarts outside the gate, rattling the cages and, and you know, all the cliches. I've liked that conception. I haven't wanted respectability. But how does that conception hold up when the big guys, the legacy corporate players, are collapsing all around us? Just last week, Bell laid off 4,800 people, and they announced that they are selling dozens of radio stations. So how do we go on defining ourselves as the other when the thing that we're defining ourselves against seems like it's on its last gasps? To get some insight into this question, I'm going to turn to an unlikely source, but a familiar one to you. You heard me interview Max Krangle a few weeks ago. He spent 12 years as a high-paid lawyer for big tobacco. What I haven't told you yet is that he also has experience in the porno business. And he has things to say about the booze business and gambling and firearms. And I got to thinking, does his thesis that regulations can make you rich, they are not the enemy, well, could it be applied to media? We are entering a new, highly regulated media framework in Canada. And my instinct, my reflex, is to push against that like a punk. But what if there's something in it for us? What if this is the key to sustainability for a company like CanadaLand? Max Krangle Part 2. Wait for it. This episode is brought to you by Kent Nicholson, Natalie Gillis, Tal Bogdanov, Stan Young, Christopher Hack, Ryan Parker, Lincoln Aitken, and Matt. I'm Matt Payne, a former professional podcast producer who learned to code and then started earning a living. I support Canada Land because they elucidate the structure of Canadian media and keep me abreast of its ongoing transformations. I like how they often feature left-leaning perspectives without going fully woke, though they have their moments. And I also love to see independent media blossoming like a beautiful flower, despite the government's best efforts. 
So here you are, you've left big tobacco, but you have an area of expertise, which is extensive experience navigating a detested, highly regulated industry as it discovers that despite that animosity and despite the government supposedly regulating it out of existence, it can become more profitable than ever. And you decide that you're going to take that know-how to every other industry that you can. That's exactly what I've been trying to do. And with some success, I wasn't even 40 years old and still a career ahead of me. I have the experience, the very unique experience of of being ex-general counsel of of R.J. Reynolds International and ex-assistant general counsel of Japan Tobacco International. And what comes with that is some very high-level experience dealing with regulation and dealing with legal problems and dealing with risk and bringing that to various other industries. It sounds like that's not all you do. And and you wrote the book on this counterintuitive idea that regulations can be your friend. Mm-hmm. Apply that for me to an industry that is different than tobacco. We know that industries fight tooth and nail to prevent regulations. They lobby the hell out of governments to, to not regulate them. They want to have the power. How is this good for business other than tobacco? I think tobacco sort of sits on a pulpit of its own aside from all of these other industries for one specific reason, there are no safe levels of smoking. Alcohol kills a lot of people too. Absolutely it does. And it is a carcinogen and it it has its own issues. But the government and and medical professionals, at least today in the year 2024, this seems to be rapidly rapidly evolving as well. Firearms, that's that's an industry that has a high death count every year? It it certainly does. Uh, But but then remember that firearms are also used not just for home protection for our friends south of the border, but they're also used legitimately for hunting. They're used in the military and elsewhere. My point being, though, that these are both industries that uh, are highly regulated, and there's lots of good reasons for that. But can you make the argument that the regulations can be the industry's friend? I mean, wouldn't they just be making a lot more money if there were no regulations of uh, alcohol sales or or firearms sales? So the answer is it depends. So many of these industries, the firearms and alcohol industries, are starting to and already have adopted the, if you want, like I like to call it the ostrich approach that the tobacco industry had from the mid-1960s up into the 90s. And that's denying that there's any problem and fighting the regulations. And instead of embracing it and working with the government as their business partner, they are going down that initial road that, that big tobacco went on. Where that ends for them, I don't know. But what I can bring to them is the learning on how shifting your mentality, shifting your business model, shifting your priorities treating your relationships with the general public, with the government, with your customers differently has reaped benefits. If anyone is more hated than big tobacco, it is the firearm industry. I take from your point of view that denying this horrific problem of mass shootings, not only is this disastrous to their brand, but it might actually be bad for business. And if they simply say, okay, we make a deadly product, it needs to be tightly regulated, there may be a path forward that leads to greater profits for them. Yes. Yes, I think so. Of course, they are not currently facing the same level of lawsuits and potential financial ruin 
that the tobacco industry faced in the late 1990s. So their incentives may be to right. be a bit more open about this and treat this the way tobacco did might be a little bit further on. You have examples of industries that might benefit from embracing regulation and there might be an upside for them. Has anyone taken your advice, I suppose, and won? Yes. A great one, I think, is the online gambling industry. Mm -hmm. It is a bit of a free-for-all still uh, because of the nature of the internet. Uh, uh, quite frankly, why anybody, for example, outside the province of Ontario or any other Canadian province would gamble on a website or with a, with a bookmaker that is outside their province, to me, seems crazy that they would even do that because there's zero proof that you're being treated fairly. You have the no idea. I only know about gambling from playing poker and mm -hmm. knowing that there are only 52 cards in the deck gives me some assurance as to the fairness. You're online. You have no there's – there's an algorithm that, that has every incentive to just be ensuring that it extracts more money from you. Not only extracts more money from you than you put in, but is like gaming you to figure out exactly – I assume that it is studying the player to figure out how much money to get out of that player. I would assume that's correct, but when you play an online game – that is run by the government of Ontario or regulated by the government of Ontario, you are assured a, a, a very robust level of protection. Uh -huh. It's when you start gambling on online casinos that are in the, the, the Windward Islands or in the Caribbean, not only are you not necessarily playing a fair game, but if you magically were to win a jackpot... Would you get the money? Would you get the money, right? That industry, which is very profitable, as you can possibly imagine, yeah. generally speaking, these industries get themselves into trouble when consumers consumers start complaining. And whether it's the FTC in the United States or a regulatory body here in Canada, consumers complain when they feel that they get ripped off or they get sick or they get they have some other kind of problem. One of the pieces of learning that I've brought to them is this idea of voluntary compliance. This is what industries have done when under threat of regulation since time immemorial. My first knowledge of this came as a, as a comic book fan when uh, there was a moral panic about uh, comic books and about Bill Gaines, uh, you know, crypt of horror comics, uh, seduction of the innocent. Uh, <laughs> what did the comic industry do? They created the Comics Code Authority. We are a self-regulating censor. What did the video game industry do? What, did, what, did, what was the Hayes Code in movies? All of these, uh, you know, industries that were considered sin industries at a certain point said, don't regulate us. That's the last thing we want. We'll regulate ourselves. Yes. And that tends to work for Advertising, sure. Advertising, yeah. Advertising standards authorities. And it keeps the regulators away for sure. It doesn't always work, but there are still many countries in the world, believe it or not, where you don't have to put health warnings on, on packets of cigarettes or cannabis products or so on and so forth, but the industry still does it. So that's one very simple thing that you can do, but to look, you look at the past and say, well, look, one of the problems that we've, that we've had, that the tobacco industry has had in, in the smoking health debate is that there was a failure to warn. You knew this product was bad, but you didn't tell us. Well, if we've been voluntarily putting health warnings on packets of cigarettes for 50 years now, and in many jurisdictions where it's not legally required, but still doing it, that's something that you can proactively do to mitigate your risk going forward in the future. It may seem quite obvious, but it's often very hard. Don't to wait until you have to. Just do it voluntarily. Do it voluntarily. Because it's not the crime. It's the cover-up. It's not the crime. It's the cover-up. But also, from a legal perspective, when you're looking at for, for making someone liable 
for the actions that they have caused, the tariff card for the damages that get assessed increases exponentially when there's negligence involved, mm-hmm. right? So yeah, your company may have done something wrong, but it's very different than doing something wrong and knowing about it and still not doing anything. Right. So you're, you're, what you're preaching now is advice of uh, liability protection, protecting against lawsuits. That's not necessarily a business opportunity. It's just a downward risk uh, they, they, you know, assessment. It's not the same thing as like, well, there's actually a great way to make money here. There's just a way to protect yourself against losing money. Yes, but equally, if you adopt the tobacco approach of working with the government on making the product more expensive, uh, then that that is a business approach because as we started by talking- Accepting the taxation. Accepting the taxation. Yeah, and then exploiting it to increase your profit margins, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, certainly if people are addicted to your product or if it's just an incredibly compelling, if it's a sin product- Can I ask you for some legal advice? Well, I can try. I'm not sure I'm qualified to give you that legal advice. So I'd happily give you some advice as as a friend, but go ahead. As a friend who happens to be a lawyer. As a friend who happens to be a lawyer. My industry is facing regulation to a degree that it never has before. And maybe for the first time. Journalism has vociferously, historically resisted regulation not based on business reasons explicitly, but based on principle, that an independent press is necessary and that journalism is a human right and that it should not be the protected class of a certain professional class. All of that has changed. Mm -hmm. We now have an industry that has been lobbying for regulations. They wanted regulations because they wanted subsidies. And you if you're going to get subsidies, then you are de facto regulated because who is a journalist becomes a question that gets settled by the government, at least to the extent of who gets the money. And the industry has uh, successfully lobbied for regulations of the platforms that we rely on for news distribution, Google and Facebook. I have resisted this. I have been against this on principle, because I am a newcomer relatively to this industry. And my argument has been kind of compatible with yours, which is to say, all that this is going to do is lock in the incumbents. Because the more regulation you put in, even if it's to protect the media, it's red tape that makes it harder to enter the industry. And you become like that pack of cigarettes behind the closed uh, case. Mm But now we're kind of in. We've been here for 10 years. We can get our government status. Should I, as a news publisher, be embracing these regulations or fighting them? I think the answer depends on what it is that you're trying to do. Are you trying to uphold journalistic integrity? to remain independent, to allow for the traditional definition of of the freedom of the press to continue long into the future and to be able to report on and say what you believe is in, in the best interests of the general public without government interference. Is that what you'd like to do or is what you want to do make money? I think there are differences between the two and significant differences between the two. The classic example, which a lot of Canadians, and and this is not limited Canadians, people around the world, people love to knock Fox News, Mm -hmm. right? And it's this so-called right-wing American broadcaster that has a journalistic code with traditionally Rupert Murdoch at the the helm, 
uh, trying to bring a narrative to the American general public. Should that entity receive any government funding, we'll, we'll, we'll know that's, that is a, a, a private business. So the question is, should that private business have to explain to the general public, effectively provide some kind of health warning to their product itself to say, please watch Fox News. When we say it's fair and balanced, what we mean is we believe it's fair and balanced, but there are other people uh, out there that uh, you have to understand that the views expressed by the anchors and the news reporters on Fox News are traditionally right of center, and please note that. Now, you know, are, are we talking about how you portray the facts or are we talking about regulating who's allowed to say what? Well, it's a big mess, isn't it? But you've really you've really hit upon it because – and this is ways in which we are similar to some of the products and some of the contentious industries and sin categories that you have expertise in. And, and then there's a way in which we're not. We're weird. We're contradictory. We're both. You ask me, do I want to uphold the principles of the press uh, or do I want to make money? I want to do both. And then to this question of, is this a product that is bad for you that requires like a health risk warning? Some people would say yes. And there's a growing body of research that would say, not just Fox News because of bias, but that the rage generation of news online, the algorithmic exploitation of your cortisol levels, of your stimulus, of, of the affirmation you get from a retweet or a like, from seeing confirmation bias, from, you know, there's a sick pleasure that humans get from seeing, like, uh, and it's funny to me, people even write to me saying, I want more stories that tell me what I already think and know. They want it. Mm -hmm. they, it feels good. And it feels good to be angry. And it's making people sick. There is science that shows that the effect this has on you in many ways, the anger being exposed to traumatic things from around the world that you can do nothing about and uh, is news good? Like people will say, I am on a news diet because it was, it was hurting my mental health. And some people would argue that we have a toxic product. And then there is this other argument that the industry is making that this is like your vegetables. This is the most crucial product that is good for you. How can a citizenry how can a person possibly make good decisions, good health decisions, good decisions on who to vote for, good decisions on what to buy without an independent press? And the contradiction there is that in order to preserve this independent press, we must become dependent on subsidies. And in order to get subsidies, we'll need regulations. So we're in a very confused and mixed up place. And to your question of like, which path do I want to take? I've come to a certain conclusion that I don't necessarily have a choice. The only choice I have, like regulations are a fact, and the only choice I have, which is meaningful, is you don't have a choice as to whether or not to be regulated. Mm -hmm. You have a choice as to whether or not to accept subsidies, and my choice has been to not accept them. If I look at this purely cynically, though, the same reason why I opposed regulation to begin with, that it would basically make uh, the red tape would increase and it would be so much harder to start up a new – and I've always tried to advocate for small upstarts because we need them. Mm -hmm. But I also have a position as a publisher. I have an interest. In my, and my position is I've clambered up the ladder. And even if I'm not the one to knock it away, hey, nice to be at the top when the ladder gets knocked away. If it becomes impossible to launch a news company – 
but we are within the bounds of regulation as a recognized news company. Whether or not we take the subsidies, it's nice to be in a protected industry. A couple of things I would challenge you on there. First is you say you don't take any subsidy. Just merely by being a broadcaster in Canada, you are taking a subsidy of sorts by being regulated and protected by the CRTC. So you're... No, we're not, we're, not, uh, we're not classified as a broadcaster. So as, there's as, no... As a podcaster. We're not CRTC regulated. You have no requirements for Canadian content across any of your networks? No, there's an open question as to whether or not a new piece of regulation will ultimately place us within, uh, and, and the CRTC is coming into the picture in this in this limited capacity as a decision maker on who gets Google's money, which is not being classified as a subsidy. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the Broadcasting Act, a podcaster is at this moment. They've recently introduced a level of haze into this with Bill C-11 that a podcast network of a certain level may be CRTC regulated, Mm -hmm. uh, and then they backtracked on that. Okay. Right now, we are not within the CRTC's regime. Okay. So you're in a situation, which I think is great because it certainly changes the dynamic of what you are trying to do if you need to conform uh, to, to the CRTC regulations. There is a lot of negativity about what the CRTC does, but there are all very good benefits to what they do as well. Well, the biggest thing that they do is they offer you a protected market. There are millions of podcasts out there. There are only hundreds of TV channels. Right. If, if uh, the, the benefit, I, I would hate for podcasting to become a CRTC thing, but if that did happen, I'd want to be in, not out. So take yourself a little bit further back then and then say, okay, yeah, there are hundreds of TV channels and, and, and thousands of podcasts, but, but that wasn't the case 20, 30 years ago. Looking at the news industry, it was very closed 30 years ago. I mean, you know, if you're trying to sell a newspaper in the city of Toronto, you had the Toronto Star, you had the Toronto Sun, and you had the Globe and Mail. This is pre-National Post days, and they had a pretty much a monopoly on the post boxes and, and the distribution networks around the Absolutely. city. Absolutely. TV was like three news networks. Absolutely. Newspapers, one or two per city. It was, uh, I mean, I'm a journalist of the internet era, and, mm-hmm. and that's what I feel like I'm fighting for, was what that brought, mm-hmm. the openness and the democratization that that brought to our industry. You're now in a situation where many more people can bring news to the market. I guess what comes with that and the big change, I'm not sure, and, and I guess I was a young man or a little boy when in the era that I'm referring to in the past, so my mind might not be capable of making this determination, but you'd like to think that those limited journalistic outlets in those days, whether they be a few newspapers, a few TV stations, a few radio stations, and some wire networks, they had a journalistic code and a journalistic integrity, and 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 so far as they complied with the freedom of press legislation in, in various countries, they they were left what what they wanted to do. When when things started expanding with the advent of cable and satellite television, and which brought many more players into the market, and the advent of CNN and 24-hour news networks, and then you had it all expanding again in the mid to late 90s with with the internet age and various websites bringing news and and the likes of that bringing the, all of those products online. Massive expansion of TV channels, then YouTube, podcasts, and so forth. It's changed everything again. I guess my question to you is because things have changed, you say, should you take the government money or not? My question to you, without looking at the regulatory side of it, is well, why do you need the government money? If you're not able to run this business without the government money and others are, then is this a viable business? Or is the question, 
we're all facing the same thing. And without the government subsidy that goes with this regulation, none of us would be able to compete, which I think is a very different question. The larger question is, as this uh, C-11 thing becomes a reality, they're trying to grandfather in a scheme that is like the broadcasting regime. The more you do this, the harder it is for your incumbents to get in. But, you know, the whole industries in Canada form around exploiting these systems and taking out more than you can put in and manipulating uh, who works on a project so that you've you've got enough Canadians that you can qualify for this tax credit or that. Mm-hmm. The wheel is still in spin and there is still a fight that is possible to resist or to say, well, this this shouldn't cover us. Now, the enforcement of C-11 and who it's going to apply for, that is a, a viable fight. And it's possible that I could become part of a fight to like just leave us the fuck alone. Mm-hmm. But everything that you are telling me about the tobacco industry and elsewhere says like, look, why are you fighting so hard? If you could actually get into this scheme, <laughs> it could be a lot better for you than, than if you uh, are fighting so vociferously for it to include everybody but you. That's true, but it, it did take a long time to get there. This was not a decision that was made in 1965, one year after the Surgeon General's report. Things had to get pretty bad and pretty dire and looking like this was potentially the end of the industry as we know it today in the United States because of all of these lawsuits that were pending. So I think you're at a very, very different position. I challenge you, though, to explain why would taking government money necessarily affect your independence? Or or put another way, why does any kind of, of monopolistic or control behavior necessarily change your journalistic dependence? I mean, I'll give you an example. You know, if you and I wanted to start a professional ice hockey team to play in the National Hockey League, barring the fact that we don't necessarily have the money, you know, it's a closed shop. We can't do it. We can't get into there. But no one would, I would not make a, a claim to say that there are problems with the integrity of the uh, of the game and integrity or the fairness of the rules of the NHL because it's regulated by the government and it's closed yeah. and there's a closed shop. I'll answer that question. And it's a question that every journalist I know who has accepted, you know, either actively accepted government subsidy or, or they're part of a company that does, they make the same argument. They say, look, I'm doing my job exactly the same as I used to. So what's changed? Every journalist whose salary is subsidized by legislation introduced by the Trudeau government or by increases to the CBC's funding that have come about as a result of the Trudeau government knows that depending on who runs this country, those subsidies might disappear. And the most honorable, impartial, uncorruptible journalist knows when covering Pierre Polyev that this is a political figure who represents a real intangible threat to their paycheck. And I give absolute confidence as somebody who loves reporters and journalists and knows how important their principles are to them, that I am a citizen who has every confidence that most of these journalists will not let that affect their coverage, one iota. But the public is reasonable in decreasing their level of faith in that journalist, knowing that that journalist has an interest in which government forms power. That is a reasonable conclusion. That is a reasonable suspicion. And the independence of the press is not simply a practical matter that you can report the news independently. It is a public trust. And it only works when the public trusts us. And they trust us less than they ever have. So to your earlier question, if you don't need the money, maybe don't take it. That's where I've landed on that one is if we can survive without it, let's survive without it. 
This episode is supported in part by AG1. Listen, AG1 tests every batch to make sure that it has vitamins and minerals and like 70 ingredients that they know through research help you. I take AG1 every day without exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water. It makes me feel energized. It makes me feel like I have laid a baseline of nutritional good stuff that excuses everything else I do. Each serving delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and more. It is just a powerfully healthy habit that is also powerfully simple. If there's like one thing you do, and I know I'm not going to really do more than one thing, if there's one product to recommend to you to elevate your health, it's AG1. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That's drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. This episode is brought to you by AG1. Listen, taking care of your health is not always easy, but it should at least be simple. That is why for months now, I start every day by drinking AG1. I take a scoop of this green powder, I mix it in a canister with water, shake it up, and I drink it. I get hydrated, and I get energized and focused and ready to take on the day knowing that I have vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. These are things that science tells us we need. They are also things that I don't necessarily get every day outside of my AG1. Listen, if there's one product that I'm going to recommend that will help you elevate your health, it's AG1. And that is why I have been partnered up with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, it starts with AG1. Try it now and you'll get a free welcome kit that includes a shaker bottle, canister, a metal scoop, along with five free travel packs. You'll get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 along with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. That is drinkag1.com slash CanadaLand. Check it out. I want to ask you about one other contentious industry that I know you're involved in. And that is an industry that is under incredible pressures for regulation, and there's all kinds of moral panic about it, and people are, in a very similar way, associating lots of dangers with it. That is the adult entertainment business. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about your involvement in that business? Sure. I mean, I, I can't speak to the, the the names of the specific clients themselves, but that I, I have looked at, worked in a number of projects, whether it being acquiring the rights to the 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 the, the, the Playboy collection to various operators that have adult websites worldwide, whether that, that be pornography or adult cams uh, or also adult products uh, such as vibrators and, and, and other products like that. It is a huge, huge, huge business and continues to be so. You have represented those clients or do you have any other involvement in that industry? Uh, I've represented and I, I'm part of a company that has some involvement in that industry as well. You know, there was a Nicholas Kristof article you might have caught in the New York Times about Pornhub. We've done some coverage of these Canadians who started uh, you know, MindGeek, Pornhub. They're really mysterious international figures. One of them had their house burned down and there was this piece uh, that essentially – held them responsible for exploitation of minors and revenge porn and, and all sorts of things. And, and there was a sense that enough is enough, that something is going to be done about pornography. There needs to be some markers in the sand here, particularly in regards to pornography. I think, first of all, it's very important for people to understand that the value of the adult pornographic industry is larger than the Hollywood movie industry. So to put that in perspective, despite the fact that many people deny 
that they watch any kind of pornography. There are more movies made and more money made in the adult industry than the motion picture industry. I kind of knew if, that step, but it still blows me away it, whenever it, I... Absolutely. And so you think to yourself, well, if that's the case, a lot more people must be watching this than, than, than they're actually letting on. So that in itself is worthy of a discussion of, well, what exactly is going on here? But if we take that as read, that that is a very big part of it. There are very strict laws in the United States, which is where most of the, the pornography is made. There's a little bit made in Europe, but California and Florida are, are, are the, the epicenters of pornography production. There are very strict laws which have been in place for many years to do with making sure that no one in any of these films is under the age of 18 or appears under the age of 18. There are various initiatives and rules in place about what is considered violent and, 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 and not violent. There are various condom regulations and safe sex regulations and, and, and health regulations regarding the, the performers themselves. So the legitimate business is very profitable and is a and well and needs to be distinguished from the darker side of this, which are these illegal porn websites, whether they be porn that features children or people under the age of 18, which is highly illegal in every country yeah. in the world, and these so-called revenge porn websites and and and, and the likes. And then we're getting into well. deep fakes and stuff like that. Correct. Uh, what I saw happen with Pornhub following that article was, uh, again, uh, this self-regulation thing where they voluntarily removed because there is this professionalized or corporatized porn industry uh, largely based in, in California, though also produced in Quebec quite a bit. But then Pornhub also, the YouTube of porn, everybody can upload their own porn and that is almost impossible to ensure compliance when you have a system like that. And my understanding is that they basically kicked off all of the user-generated content and to simply define things as the light and the dark, we got rid of the dark. Well, there were also, and this is similar to the journalism argument, the more tight the regulations get, there was a whole class of independent content providers that were on the losing end of that. And uh, there, there are lots of people who are paying their rent by doing adult performance and adult content. And that, those were sort of like the acceptable attrition. Yeah, it has shifted. Obviously, these platforms, uh, Pornhub and YouPorn, and there are others, but those are those are the two big names. Their uh, business model has shifted dramatically over the last 10 years. They were originally this sort of shared space where we would envisage much like YouTube in, uh, uploading your own content to that. The problems associated with that, particularly with the laws regarding uh, age verifications and checks, become almost impossible. And the likes of revenge porn and all sorts of other problems and problematic content getting uploaded to there would have been the end of these websites as far as litigation and government shutdown goes had they not changed their business model. Mm -hmm. Their business model now is based on the legitimate production houses sharing minute or two clips of content that they have made and sell elsewhere, giving you that little free preview of, I don't know, anywhere between one and five minutes of content to then encourage you once you've watched it to actually go to their website and pay for it. And I have always wondered, and I will here reveal that I have seen some of these two-minute or five-minute or ten-minute clips Boy, there's a limitless supply of these clips. I can't imagine, I don't really need to know, uh, you know, how the plot ends, which is often included anyhow. What possible conversion rate could there be on people who say, you know what, I want to see the full hour of this, but... One thing I also know about internet content is that you don't need to have large conversion rates when you're dealing with mass bulk audience. 
Do you know the actual stats? I'm just kind of curious. The of, conversion I, rates are very high. So there's they still, are. There's still there's still a large percentage of the population that will pay for online pornography. Why? Because the content that is available on these free sites tends to be of 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 well, first of all, short clips. Although not all people need. Some people are just looking for short clips for obvious reasons. But more so than that, they're looking to uh, the, for a specific genre or a specific star. They're looking for fresh content. The best way to explain this, and whilst I can't give you the exact conversion figures for, for, any, of, for any of those websites, I can say this. If you did not have a robust business model behind this, new stuff wouldn't be produced every day. And it's still being produced mm -hmm. and it's still coming out and it's still being sold. So something is happening there. People are paying for it. Yeah, there's a working model. There is a working model, not to mention the fact that people don't necessarily trust these files that you're watching on these websites. Who knows what kind of, of malware or other types of viruses are potentially embedded in these files, particularly if you download them to your computer. Is that a real concern? Absolutely, it's a real concern. And you're seeing this as somebody who's involved with the industry? You're seeing that people like, what do they want hard copies again? So some people want hard copies. So some people want to, for example, rather than watching something on their phone or their computer, they'd like to watch it on a television, whether in their living room or their bedroom. That's not hard to stream from here. It's not hard to stream, but if you want to watch full content in full HD and, and, and so forth, and you may want to watch it more than once, people still buy pornography. There is also- Like they're a, buying like Blu-rays and DVDs? So DVDs are still sold actually for quite a, for, for a different reason, and it may be a surprise to people in the year 2024 that, that, that people are still buying pornographic DVDs. Why are people uh, buying porn DVDs? Because there's no digital trace of you watching those or buying that or, or looking at that stuff online. Uh, there is a particularly, uh, my understanding and from, 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 from what I have seen, there is a large percentage of, of, of all male porn that is still sold on DVDs and not just to a, a traditional audience that likes all male porn, which would be a, the gay male community, but the gay female community. And also there are a number of statistics out there now that one in four straight males are watching pornography that only features males as well. And they don't want a digital trace of those or a digital record of them watching those, those, those movies. Hold on. There, so there's a viable market on, I guess, closeted gay men who want to watch gay porn and are afraid that if they click on gay porn on on you porn, somebody will find out, so they buy a DVD? I would say that's part of it, but I wouldn't use your terms. I wouldn't say necessarily that they're closeted gay men because the statistics out there are one in four men who identify as straight and would never have a sexual experience with someone of the same sex are watching that. So I think it's wrong to classify traditional gay porn as only appealing to gay men or someone that is a closeted gay man. Just in the same way that there are many women out there who identify as straight and will always be straight who enjoy watching all-female pornography. That's wild. So these are straight guys who will send away for a gay porno DVD. They're, they're but they're not gay. They're not gay. They want to watch gay porn. Mm -hmm. And we don't call it gay porn. We just call it all-male cast or an all-male porn. Uh-huh. And yet they are, they're comfortable with that, yeah. but they don't want anybody to ever know, I guess because of reactions like mine, because uh, it, it's hard for me to get my head around, if you're straight, why would you want to watch 
all-male performers. Correct. You will see many articles in many publications over many years now of this phenomenon of straight males enjoying all-male porn in the Lord of DVD. That still exists. Maybe that's not shocking that people who identify as straight have some kind of curiosity. I guess all you could say is that they are erotically interested in men having sex with men. Whether that makes you bi or gay is maybe a question for somebody else to answer, but they like watching it. Certainly a question for somebody else to answer. I'm definitely not qualified to answer that. I just see the statistics. <laughs> it's out there, and it's very much part of the industry. But that's not exploiting or part of the exploitation of these websites. So you do have this legitimate adult business, and that's not just the movies, by the way. Another growing industry are these so-called adult camps. So these are performers that will perform on live video feed for you, whether it be through an OnlyFans-type arrangement, which is a subscription, which, by the way, is where a lot of those people that were previously on YouPorn and Pornhub have gone to places like OnlyFans. Or there are various websites out there and, and providers that will, instead of selling you movies or online pornography, you can actually interact with a performer and pay them tips in order for them to perform live for you over the internet. That's a big part of the business as well, sort of the modern-day strip bar, the modern-day strip club, the COVID-friendly strip club, if you want. And you can take that as far as the performer will want to go and as far as, far as you want to go in a way that you can't do in a public setting. And then, of course, the adult toys as well, which is a huge business and growing rapidly. Yeah, and extending my kind of comparison or, or metaphor of uh, journalism to pornography, the question I had, when I think about conversion rates of giving away some content in the hopes that some people will convert to the paid content, a lot of the reason why people do that for us is because they believe in what we're doing. And they like us. They like talk, hearing from us. And, and uh, they want us to, uh, to be paid for the work that we do. And I never imagined that dynamic existing for porn. Like, like, like you know, this isn't fair that I'm using all this free pornography. How do I expect these poor pornographers to uh, do their, their valuable work unless I chip in a little bit? I never thought that that would be a viable business model for the porn industry. I now see that I'm wrong about that because when you actually move it from you porn to an OnlyFans, you do have that, I guess, parasocial relationship where you can turn to the audience and say, hey, I can only do this if you support it. And, and that, that's a huge part of the industry now. Absolutely. And there are performers now that are making millions, literally millions. And it's, it's, it's a very clever business model. Uh, it's a dangerous business model, but it works. Dangerous why? Dangerous because of exploitation. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, you have the safety of, of, of the barrier of the internet. I'd say it's a lot safer for a performer on OnlyFans to perform online rather than in a club. But dangerous because there are thousands of people out there who think they have some sort of intimate relationship with you. And now it's, it's, it's a financial relationship as well as a sexual relationship. But it's distributed amongst thousands of people. And it is. All you need is one of them to be, yeah. I think that's part of it. I think the other part of it is that the internet is forever. Yeah. You know, if you're if you're if a family member of yours, your mother or your aunt or your grandmother, whoever it was, was a stripper, I don't think anybody really worries about it. There aren't digital records of that, and you know, people change. And young women and men uh, enter this industry, maybe naive, maybe penniless. Uh, they have careers in it, and then they go on to do other things. The porn industry is not something that you can do your entire career because as you age, you become you become less attractive to the viewer. Unfortunately, people want fresh faces. So it's not a lifelong career, and the aftermath of pornography is very, very serious. By the time we're uh, grandparents, the president will have uh, an OnlyFans page. Well, things are changing. You know, attitudes towards pornographic actresses and actors are changing. They're still not there. There, there is still this, this, this weird paradigm in society in which people just don't like admitting that they watch this stuff. 
yet the numbers are very different. It makes more money than the motion picture industry. So if that's the case, who's buying this stuff? And more importantly, who's not? Max Krangel, you're an interesting guy. Uh, Thank you so much for finding all the time to talk with me. It's a pleasure. That's your Canada land. Listen, it's very clear that we need people to directly support Canadian media or there will be no more Canadian media left. Really and truly, if you like what we're doing here, we do need you to support it. Uh, We rely on listeners like you to pay for our journalism. And as a supporter, you will get premium access to all of our shows ad-free. You'll get early releases and bonus content. You'll get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on our merchandise, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events. More than anything, like we're trying to actually look at this as as a glorious and fun opportunity for us to collaborate with you on keeping media alive. It doesn't have to be all dark grimness here. Uh, You will be funding our stuff so that everybody else can get it for free. And that's something that we can all feel good about. Come join us now. Click on the link in the show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. Do it now. You can email me at jesse at canadaland.com. I read them all. Our website is canadaland.com. Our senior producer is Bruce Thorson. Additional production and editing from Tristan Capicione. Our editor-in-chief is Karen Puglese. I am your host, Jesse Brown. Our theme music is by so-called. Syndications handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. You can listen to Canada Land ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Tired to clean your floors after playtime? Forgot to vacuum before your friends bring their little ones over? Let Eufy X10 Pro Omni help. Powerful 8,000 PA suction removes debris, and MopMaster dual mop pads scrub away stubborn stains with ease. Save time and keep your floors cleaner. Want to know more? Go to eufy.com, that's E-U-F-Y.com, and discover X10 Pro Omni, the best-in-class all-in-one robot vacuum for only $799.